20 years ago in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks, I had the opportunity to speak at a church outside of Atlanta. I wasn't pastoring then, but was still speaking in churches and got the occasional opportunity to do that. And speaking that day, I said this. There is little difference between a radicalized Islamic Amman on the other side of the world and some preachers in evangelical church pulpits here in the United States. Well, I was young and fiery then, still trying to recover and emerge from the evangelical fundamentalism of my own upbringing, and I was convinced that I could deliver the zealots by means of my zealotry. I was wrong in the use of my zealotry, but I was not wrong in my observation. Christianity is not immune to using violence as a means of accomplishing its religious goals. I've seen it in the history books. I saw it way back then, and I see it today. I am a preacher who comes from preachers. My education and my training have followed suit. It's all biblical studies and theology, ethics, spirituality, religion, and specifically the way of Jesus. These have been my life. My worldview, which is a sloppy but necessary word for lack of another, has been shaped by all of this and these experiences. The lenses through which I see the world have been ground to this particular prescription. So when I look out at our country, it's obvious that we have some trouble. Internally, as much or more trouble than 1968, as dire and as serious as 1929, we are not at 1860 levels, at least not yet. But we are not experiencing purely a political or a social crisis. We are in a religious crisis. And from a Jesus-centered perspective, our problem is idolatry. Now, I could say those last couple of lines in almost any pulpit, including that church outside of Atlanta, to which I was never invited back, by the way, and be met with uproarious amens. But here is the unsettling part. Most of us think this problem would be solved if we could, quote, return to God. If only we were once again, quote, a Christian nation, a la 1955. I like Ike, record church attendance, leave it to Beaver. If only we had the power, if only we had the courts, If only we had the candidates, if only we had the baptized and sanctified policies, then revival would come and all would be made well. But our country is not a Christian nation. It never has been. This doesn't mean America is all bad, nor does it mean one must hate one's own land of birth and heritage. It doesn't mean we give up on being good citizens. It doesn't mean that our country hasn't been on the side of right and justice in its history. It simply means that an an empire like the one we are a part of is more committed to being an empire than it is to following Jesus. 
It means we love power more than we love the Beatitudes. And our history proves this. You can't bang on and on about Christian foundations when this country is rooted in colonized, blood-soaked ground and built on the backs of an enslaved people. Ask the indigenous tribes of this continent if they think America began as a Christian nation. Go back and ask one of the millions of Africans in the belly of a ship somewhere in the Atlantic on his way to a southern plantation where he will die in chains if he thinks America began as a Christian nation. Oh, Ronnie, here you go again. Here I go again. I got in big trouble a number of years ago at the Seaside Chapel. I preached a sermon entitled, Who would Jesus bomb? And it wasn't a diatribe. It was an invitation for all of us to think about how violence upholds so much of what we do and how Jesus was victimized by violence. And there are people who have never gotten over me saying such a thing in that place. For years, I have talked about the dangers of this kind of idolatry, our obsession with power, Way back after 9-11, here in this place regularly, I've written about it in almost every book I've ever had published. I have fielded all the hateful emails. I have been verbally assaulted in public about it. And even as I have given my own sons to serve this country, I can't make people seem to understand that there is a difference between citizenship and idolatry, between patriotism and power-hungry nationalism. There is a difference between being a Christian who happens to live in America and the myth of building a Christian America. I stood right here 11 years ago. Actually, it was in the now uh, Publix liquor store when we met there. And I delivered a series of eight talks on the coming collapse of the evangelical church in this country that it was losing its witness and spiritual influence because it was entrenching itself in a false belief of history because it seemed incapable of loving the changing world around us and because more and more it relied upon political power to do its work. That was 11 years ago. I stood right here or somewhere six years ago and said, quote, Christian nationalism, the misconstrued idea of merging Christian and American identities, This fusion that must be protected at any cost, even violence, will be the greatest threat to our legitimate witness for the rest of my life. And people that I love came up to me after the service and looked me in the face and said, I will never step foot in this church again. And so we arrive here years later. And what has bothered me the most about what we saw in our nation's capital in recent days is not the protest. That's as American as apple pie. It's not the political posturing and the false equivalencies. That's pretty American too. It's not the violence. I hate to say that's fairly American. What bothered me is when I saw a Jesus saves flag assaulting the Capitol. 
in the midst of the chaos. This cozy connection of the gospel with violence. What bothered me is when I saw a gallows on the lawn of the U.S. Capitol with a cross beside it. An individual who stormed the Capitol last week broadcast her actions across social media. I'll not cite her name. I'll not give her the oxygen, but I will quote her. We are going to effing go in there. Life or death. She paused to put a plug in for her realty agency after that. Buy a house from me. And she said, USA, USA, we have arrived in Jesus' name. Now, If you want to riot, if you want to play insurrectionist, you just have at it. But please, take Jesus' name out of your mouth while you are doing that. Regardless of affiliations, my brothers and sisters, as believers in Jesus, we must say that displays and attitudes like those take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And this is the exact attitude and behavior, the idolatry that has bothered me for so long. I want it to bother you. I want it to distress you. I want you to throw off this idea that violence can uphold with any integrity, Christianity. I want to bring us back to Jesus, his way, and his example. And we are looking at a single example this morning from the night that Jesus was betrayed. A story ringing in my head for two weeks now. Jesus finishes his last meal with his disciples. He takes a walk in the cool night of the early spring to a garden. It's actually an olive tree grove to pray. The garden's name is Gethsemane. It is still there. A massive church sits there now. The Church of All Nations, a beautiful basilica at a busy crossroad outside of Jerusalem. And in the courtyard of that church, there are ancient olive trees, so old, so enormous, it would take seven or eight of us to get our arms linked together to reach around them. Those olive trees are over 2,000 years old. Certainly Jesus himself walked among them, maybe even knelt and prayed beside one of them. And it is there that Jesus struggles with God. He knows the cross looms. He knows His time has come. And He does what all of us do. He begs for another way. Because anything is possible with you, Father. But in the end, Jesus surrenders. Not my will, Lord, but Your will be done. And Jesus would not have lifted up his eyes to the heavens with that prayer so much as he would have lifted up his eyes to the Jewish temple. It was standing in his day, and from where he was kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, just across the Kidron Valley and buttressed up against the city wall, the temple would have ascended into the air maybe 50 stories tall. Jesus is in the shadow of the temple as he prays. He is in the shadow of God's presence. And out of that shadow comes his betrayer, Judas, and the arrest party. They arrive in full SWAT tactical gear. And after Jesus calls Judas friend, something I'll never be able to scrub from my mind, he turns to those who have come to take him, 
sent by the authorities and the religious leaders. And he asked, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you would come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But at least one of Jesus' disciples wants the revolution. He wants the violence. He wants Jesus to seize power and to do by force what can only be done in the heart and soul. One of the men with Jesus, the Bible says, and John rats him out, it's Simon Peter, no surprise there. Simon Peter pulled out a sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. You see this? Oh, Pete's locked and loaded, man. He's wearing a t-shirt that says, Theos Hoplon Israel. God, guns, country. He isn't playing, and you know he was aiming at the guy's head. And only missed. And bless his heart, he's got a bad aim and a dull understanding. Verse 52, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? Jesus will not have violence committed in His name. Jesus will not allow the path of surrender and service to be circumvented by force. Jesus will not fight fire with fire. Why? Because to live by the sword is to die by the sword. You pull the cork out of that bottle and you will never get the genie back in. The violence that you sow to the wind returns in destruction on the whirlwind. Here's a story from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. He was a German writer from 200 years ago. He spins this tale about a sorcerer who leaves his workshop to run some errands or something, and in his absence, he puts his young assistant in charge of cleaning up the place, from which von Goethe entitles his work The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mickey Mouse's version is based on the original, but not Nicolas Cage's, just so you know. The apprentice sets out to mop the floor. But hauling the water and scrubbing the hardwood is just not his thing. It's just too much work. So he uses magic. Magic that he is only a novice at to get the job done. And at first things go well. The mop begins to mop all by itself. It draws its own water. The heavy lifting is over and the apprentice is delighted. But then the apprentice can't turn it off. He tries to stop the mop with his incantation, but he only makes more mops. And on and on it goes, multiple mops drawing multiple buckets of water, buckets and buckets, until the workshop is completely flooded. And the sorcerer finally returns, and he sees this disaster unfolding, and the apprentice is desperate. He turns to his teacher and he says, The spirits I have summoned, I can no longer control and that's the lesson pick up the tools of power pick up that sword 
Choose illegitimate ways and suspicious means to accomplish what you think is good. Choose violence, unleash it, and you will not be able to control where it goes. It will become a monster devouring each and everything in its path. The good, the bad, the middle, the left, the right, the center. It will have no bounds. And it is this way every time the church goes for power. It's how we ended up with Constantine and armies marching out across the land with crosses on their shields to slaughter and to pillage and to oppress. It's how we ended up with centuries of European corruption and ignorance and superstition in the name of the church. We ended up with the Crusades exterminating hundreds of thousands of enemies with the blessing of Jesus. And the more enemies you killed, the Pope told the soldiers, the better your place in heaven. Does that sound familiar? And then these same European powers arrive on foreign shores, a sword in one hand and a Bible in the other. Letting the peoples of the Americas and Africa know that they had been saved from their darkness. Now get baptized, pay the king, and pay your tithes, or it's off with your head. Right here in Florida, what we call Florida, conquistadors arrived and they read on the Augustinian coast the requirement to the native tribes. I'll read a part of it to you this morning. If you do not recognize the church, consent to her religious authority, and in the name of the Pope take our King as Lord of this land, then with the help of God we shall powerfully enter into your country, we will make war against you in all ways and manners that we can, we will subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church, we shall take from you your wives and your children, and shall make them slaves. And as such, sell and dispose of them as we see fit. We shall take away your goods, and we shall do all the damage and mischief that we can do, and your deaths shall be your own fault. Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln and the liberation of Europe, these may be in our national ancestry, but all of these other things are too. And we must be vigilant, constantly vigilant not to let this heresy of Christian violence worm its way back to the forefront because it is never far away and it is always a danger. Just before the events of our scripture reading today and just a few hundred yards from the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus paused as he rode into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And the crowds were cheering, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus looked out over the city of God and he, he looked at the parade of those people waving their palm branches and singing their songs and he wept. He said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you would not let me. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
He knew the pain, the suffering to come, not for himself, but for the people whom he loved. They were on the wrong path. Ignorance and, ag- ignorance and arrogance would destroy them. You didn't have to be a prophet to see where it was all headed. And a single generation later, what he saw in his imagination came true. Jerusalem was destroyed. The nation disintegrated. The people were scattered to the wind. And so it would be for two millennia. And the horror those peoples, people would have to endure over the generations, no tongue can tell. And when it all came crushing down and ripping apart, the Jewish historian Josephus said it wasn't Rome. It wasn't the injustice. It wasn't the inequities. It was the nation's inability to step away from violence toward each other. When they turned their swords on themselves, fighting for God and country, they lost their way and they lost everything. And Jesus knew where it would go. Jesus was right, we kill our prophets. He could have added, then we build them a monument. Such is the case with Martin Luther King. He loved this country. He loved the way of Jesus. He was always holding this intention, these two things, working for the right, working for justice, doing so as one who would tell those in authority the truth and doing so while rejecting violence. During the civil rights movement, based on his study of Jesus and particularly the Beatitudes, he issued ten commandments of nonviolence. This is the way he implored others. We have hard years ahead of us, maybe decades. Committing to these might help us all. Number one, Meditate daily on the teachings and the life of Jesus. Two, remember remember to seek justice and reconciliation, not victory. Three, walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. Four, pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free. Five, sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free. Six, observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. Seven, seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. Eight, refrain from the violence of fist tongue, and heart. Nine, strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. And ten, follow the directions of this movement. A movement based on the words of Jesus. Put away your sword that the world might be healed.